0: Hi, it's Doc Kilgore, Director of Marketing and Creative Content for the DNCP. When we put this project together, we insisted that it be of the highest Possible broadcast quality, but it's not for everybody. It's only for those who know how to act right.
1: Sometimes I don't act right, but I still listen. The Doc and Carolyn Podcast. And
0: we're back. Episode three, episode three of the Doc and Carolyn Podcast. Hey, what's up? This is Doc Kilgore. You know, I'm not a real doctor, but I do play one on this show.
1: I'm Carolyn Kilgore, MSN, APRN, FNPC, Mm. which just means I'm a nurse practitioner doing postgraduate work in functional and integrative medicine.
0: You just a country nurse practitioner. That's I like, right. like that about you. Well, welcome back, folks. On the recap from last week's show, the second floor has generated heat mail. Uh, he, did I say heat mail? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it belongs in a fire. That's why. <laughs> yeah, but we've got some hate mail on the second floor episode. We'll deal with that next week. And the Facebook report.
1: Happy birthday, Julie Baldwin, George Allen, Nick Lynn, Tiffany Brantner, Jeremy Cotton, Casey Phillip, It's a Kraken, and Ryan Jones.
0: We had a staff meeting at the DNCP. This was a high-level meeting between the principals of this organization to come up with a name for your feature. What do you think about this one? The NP is in. Mm. Mm, I don't know about that one. All right. Okay. Second choice. It's time for Beyond the Lab Coat.
1: You're either going to have to change the name or lose the music because you sound a little creepy. I think we need to talk a little more.
0: Right. We'll put that (laughs) that on the agenda for the next staff meeting. Okay, so until we can get this figured out, uh, we'll do it like this. The NP is in wearing a nice lab coat. Wow. (laughs) What's this week's feature about?
1: Today, we're going to solve the mystery of dehydration.
0: Seems like a simple enough question, maybe a simple answer. What is dehydration?
1: It just means that your body's losing more fluid than you're replacing.
0: Hmm. And... uh, uh, I forgot my second
1: question. Yeah, I lost my notes.
0: So why is it so important to stay on top of your hydration?
1: Because your body is over 60% water, depending on your fat or muscle level. And you need electrolytes like potassium and sodium that carry signals from cell to cell. And if you're not hydrated, they can't send the proper signals. So that causes issues like muscle cramps. And in severe cases, um, it can cause seizures. If you're not hydrated, you can also get headaches, feel fatigued, brain fog, that kind of thing. If you want to know if you're hydrated, just look at your pee. If it's clear, you're hydrated.
0: So like, so if your pee is talking to you and you understand exactly what it's saying?
1: If the color is clear. (laughs) What is wrong with you
0: i heard you say this the other day and it's mind-blowing so you said don't drink with your meals when you go to a restaurant that's the first thing they do is take your drink order so what's that all about
1: right well if you drink a lot while you're eating it raises your ph which means your stomach is more alkaline than acidic you need the acid in order to digest your food properly
0: and what is that? how, how does that show up in, in how we feel and how our body reacts if we're sucking down all this water?
1: Um, you can have bloating, um, heartburn, and if you do it long term, it can cause a lot of issues with your gut, which wow. we're going to talk a lot about.
0: In this week's Everyday People, we're so blessed to have child psychologist Dr. Stephanie Porter from the prestigious Riley Children's Hospital in Indianapolis with us.
2: Hi, how are you? I'm
0: doing well. Good to see you. I'm doing well. What's your professional designation?
2: I am a child psychologist. I specialize in autism evaluation and treatment.
0: Well, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here on the Doc and Carolyn podcast.
0: Well, it's great to have you. How do you start your path into being a doctor?
2: Yeah, so it actually started, um, I graduated high school early and I started to take classes at the local community college, Lee College uh, in Baytown. Highly recommend if you're 17, 18 years old, Years old, and you don't know what you want to do yet, go to a community college and get those core classes out of the way.
0: That's important. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And um, I was working at Fitness Connection in Baytown and I was checking in people to the gym and selling them protein shakes. And my boss found out immediately that I was not a salesperson. <laughs> and so they moved me upstairs to the kids club. So people drop off their kids for two hours while they go work out.
0: And you were built for that.
2: And yeah, I started hanging <laughs> out with these kids. And that's when I knew. I knew I wanted to work with kids. And so then I...
0: Did you understand that you were going that direction to be a to be a, a doctor?
2: No, Oh, oh okay. no, not at the time. But, I you, was but not, you just
0: loved working with the yeah, children. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh.
2: So it took a while for me. I think when I graduated with my psychology bachelor's degree, I really wasn't ready for the real world. So I went to a master's program and then that just led me to keep on going. I don't think I ever knew I would be a doctor until, you know, it all happened. But
0: I know you and Shannon traveled a whole lot and that's, yeah. that's part of who you are yeah. uh, as a person. And, 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 Shannon also, I mean, that's a big part of, of his personality. So, so tell me about some of the travels you guys did through your uh, doctorate.
2: Yeah. So, um, when I graduated with my bachelor's degree, I was at Texas State University. University in San Marcos near Austin, Texas and then I went to a master's program at the same university and I almost finished that and I decided, you know, I want more flexibility in my job And so I applied to these Ph.D. programs and I applied all over Texas and I did some that were a little bit scarier to me. So I applied to
0: tell tell me. Tell me about that. What's scary about one program versus another? Just
2: moving, you know, going to Colorado and not knowing anyone. I got into this school in Colorado and it was the scariest option and so I knew how to take it because that's just kind of the person I am. Had you I'm, been
0: to Colorado before?
2: No. <laughs> and I moved there.
0: Wow. Yeah. But, but Colorado's beautiful. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so tell me about that experience being in Colorado and studying there.
2: Um, so I, I remember my brother was living in Austin and I told him I got into a school in Colorado and I'm going to move there. And he said, you know, I think I'm going to come with you. What? Yeah.
0: How cool is that?
2: And I said, let's do it. So we both moved. So I ended up bringing a family member there. Uh-huh. Um, and the program was great. Colorado was great. I worked at the Colorado Children's Hospital. You are working hostel. on
0: your PhD during this time? Yeah. Well, How, how hard was that? Uh,
2: I mean, yeah, I didn't think I was going to live through it. I think it's just, you know, I, I was really good at the memorization and taking a test. But when you're in a PhD program, you have to commit the knowledge and then have an output of the knowledge that is, um, where you can talk about it, where you can write about it, where you can be questioning about it, you know, mm-hmm. curious. Mm-hmm. So not only do you have to know all the information, you have to be an expert. Mm. And so that's just really hard. It's a lot of work and you know, you have to write your dissertation, which is hundreds and hundreds of pages of work. A lot so, of research. Yeah.
0: When you're in your PhD program, you want to specialize, you let's say from your PhD program, you then decide to specialize in autism. How does that happen? Is that part of your degree plan for your PhD or is that something outside of that?
2: Usually what happens is you have a professor that specializes in something that you have an interest in and you kind of go under their wing. So there was a professor, um, that ended up being my advisor who specialized in autism assessment and treatment and, um, you know, a lot of psychologists weren't touching autism at the time. It was kind of a scary subject for anyone. And that was exciting to me. As you know, my personality is very, let me go here. Let me go where someone hasn't been before. Sure. So, um, I just really fell in love with the kids with autism. You know, they're so interesting and inspiring. Um, so then it just made it, it really clicked.
0: What is autism?
2: Yeah, so autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder, which means that it starts in early childhood. So that zero to three, zero to five age range, um, you're going to see delays in development. So, um, and there are several, you know, disorders like this, you know, ADHD, for instance, um, some genetic disorders, but autism uh, specifically, you have to have delays in language, social communication, and what we call restrictive and repetitive behaviors.
0: Why is that? Why why does that happen in children? So
2: it's a highly hereditary disorder. So if you have a son, for instance, that has autism, Mm -hmm. you're more likely your other kids that you have are going to have autism as well.
0: So it runs in families. It
2: does. Yeah. And there has been some environmental research as well. Mm -hmm. Some factors. Um, There's nothing really pinned down. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I was doing research, they were looking at a larger head circumference may indicate autism. There's nothing really pinned down and it's just kind of, um, you know, it might be and it could be an infection during pregnancy. If the mom has an infection, there's a higher likelihood or, you know, maternal age. If mom is older, there's a higher likelihood. So there's really just these kind of um, speculations that have been proven, but there's nothing that I can really say that's, you know, a pinpoint.
0: Do you remember your graduation day?
2: Well, actually it was during COVID. Uh Everyone in my family, you know, I had been a doctor for about a year and a half and they're like Stephanie when are you going to (laughs) graduate yeah (laughs) and I'm like oh you missed it I did I didn't get to wear the cool hat and the cool outfit but I I graduated um virtually.
0: So you graduate. How hard was it to find a job?
2: Oh, it was easy. Um, there, There's a need for psychologists right now. And there is a need for people that specialize in autism as well. Um, everywhere that I've worked doing autism evaluation and treatment, my waitlist has been a year or more.
0: Oh, wow. We were touching on travel. Tell me what you did in Europe.
2: I was working at Denver Children's Hospital and I was taking notes for my boss in a meeting one day and she was doing a research study on equestrian therapy for kids with autism and what they did was they put these bracelets on children with autism that measures their cortisol levels the stress hormone and they found that whenever these kids were hanging out with horses brushing them and just being around them their cortisol levels went down significantly and she was telling me about this ranch that she visited in France and I was kind of joking around you know me and I said do they need an intern And she said, yeah, I bet you they would love an American intern. That opportunity I kind of created out of thin air and I moved to France and I had no idea what I was going to need. You
0: were t- <laughs> killing me with this jumping around. You go to Colorado, you end up in Pennsylvania. Now you're in France.
2: Yeah. Um, so I remember I got an email and the the boss that I was going to have told me, make sure you bring sleepers. You're going to need sleepers. What does that mean? Well, I didn't know. And I wrecked my brain and I'm Googling it. And finally, after weeks of just torture, I email and say, I'm sorry, I don't know what sleepers are. (laughs) Do I need to buy a bed? Like, what is this? She meant slippers. (laughs)
0: Well, that's pretty good. So so what was France like? It
2: was actually in the smallest village left in France. So I was in this tiny little town uh, living on a ranch. And I lived with a couple guys that were ranch hands. And they only spoke French. And I spoke zero French. The first day that I get there, I am sick as a dog. I mean, I I was just from traveling. It was cold. I had just gotten back from, I was in Austria and Hungary and I I traveled a a bit before I was meant to start this job. I went to Austria, Hungary and Czechia, which is the Czech Republic. They're all kind of right there. So I just took a train, two hour train. But you know, I did have this moment when Shannon came to visit me. I had been there for almost three months and I realized that I hadn't seen someone that I knew in three months, which is interesting, right? right? Like yeah. I like meeting new people, but you don't know these people, you know, you see them and, you know, you talk to them at the bar for 30 minutes or they're staying in the same hostel as you. Um, and so, you know, when I saw Shannon, I just kind of had that realization, like, wow,
0: how nice. <laughs>
2: yeah. Someone that I know, someone that knows me.
0: How did you end up landing the position at Indianapolis children's?
2: Um, yeah, so it's actually called a uh, Riley hospital, um, in Indianapolis. I applied there because Shannon said Indianapolis might be a fun place to live. And I thought, okay, I've never really thought about Indianapolis. I yeah. have no idea about it. Um, and I interviewed there and I got the job and I realized like, oh, this is a really prestigious hospital. This is a great opportunity for me. Riley mm-hmm. Children's Hospital is, is major there in the Midwest. Yeah. And I'd never heard of it. When I got the job, I thought, you know, I, I ought to take this because it is really good.
0: Sweet. And what are you doing now?
2: Now I work for a company called Lighthouse Autism Center. They are based in Indiana um, and they offer treatment for children with autism. And it's a very specific treatment. It's called Applied Behavior Analysis Treatment. They often call it ABA therapy. Um, and it's a very intensive behavioral therapy for children with autism.
0: So you meet a patient for the first time. You're you're referred, let's say a child is referred to you. Yeah. How do you begin to, to make that connection with you're with your new patient, with your new friend?
2: Yeah, so it starts virtually and I start with the parent and I really want to ask them, you know, why did you come in? What are you seeing that I need to try to see today? And then I get a developmental history, you know, any medical history that I need to know, but also their development. I want to know when they started using gestures, when they started using their first words, um, what does their play look like? And then I do a play observation virtually, um, which I think can have its um challenges but also you know I'm getting to see this child in their home setting so sometimes they feel more comfortable than if they were to come into my office and then from that point I decide if I need to see them in person I'm looking for how they like to play if they're making eye contact with their par- with their ah. parents um, and sometimes if they're older I'll have them interact with me over virtual sometimes it goes well sometimes it doesn't
0: what are the extremes either either direction that that you, that you see,
2: you know, I think in my circles we're trying to move away from this language of high functioning, low functioning. Um, you know, Aspergers you'll probably hear kicked sure. around sometimes. Sure. Um, Doctor Asperger was anti-Semitic, so he was actually removed from the book that we used to diagnose psychiatric disorders. Wow! And it's just called autism spectrum disorder now. Oh, okay. And so what that means is just like you know, although you have to have again a deficit in language. social communication skills, and the presence of restrictive and repetitive behaviors, there's a wide range of what that can look like. So in terms of language, um, we're looking for a deficit here. So I'm looking for if the child is using language, um, if they're using it on time, right? We want to see those first words developing at a certain time. I'm also looking at gestures, you know, are they using gestures when they speak or to describe something? You know, I'm three um, with their fingers. And also, So you know, if I have an older kid, I'm looking for their reciprocity and conversation. Mm -hmm. Can they have a conversation with another person? Um, I'm also looking for their tone of voice, Mm. right? Do they have an unusual inflection in some way, or maybe they're, um, overly monotone or robotic like that, Mm. right? That's Mm -hmm. unusual. Um, in terms of the social communication aspect, I'm looking for eye contact. Maybe it's non-existent or maybe it's too intense. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking at if they have an interest in their peers, you know, do they uh, go up to other kids and request play? And then in terms of the restrictive and repetitive behaviors, um, this is what's very specific to autism, is um, repetitive play. You know, maybe they're spinning the wheels on the toy car rather than rolling the car back and forth. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they're using repetitive language, like a repetitive babble, ticka, 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 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe Maybe they have rigidities, rigidity in their sensory preferences, right? What what does that mean? Sensory can be sensory seeking, right? Seeking out physical touch, deep pressure, mouthing or smelling things. Those are sensory seeking behaviors. Mm -hmm. Um, And we we wouldn't expect them after a certain age, right? We wouldn't expect a three-year-old to still be smelling objects. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they can also be sensory avoiding. So avoiding sounds, avoiding avoiding clothing textures or lights. Mm-hmm. Um, those, those are some symptoms of autism as well. And I like to explain to parents when I'm diagnosing their child with autism, it can be very sensitive and very painful. Um, and I always like to explain it in this way. And I think it'll be helpful for the viewers. You know, you and I know how to have a conversation because we picked up on that naturally. Mm-hmm. Whereas someone with autism, they just need to be explicitly taught and practiced. Oh. So not saying they'll never have that skill. They just need to be explicitly taught. So if I'm telling how, if I'm teaching someone how to have a conversation, I would say, okay, first you're going to ask them a question and then you're going to wait for their response and then you might answer your own question. So what I were to ask you, what's your favorite color? I would wait for you to respond. I can say blue. Yeah, you would say blue and I would say, oh cool, mine's green. See how I just answered my own question? Understood. Okay, let's practice that again, right? And so they just need a little bit extra support to get there.
0: If we walk in and encounter a parent with an autistic child, is there a way to, to, to begin to interact with them? Are there cues that we can take on what's comfortable for them?
2: Oh, that's a great question. I think, you know, parents, it's a challenge for them to kind of admit or, you know, express like, hey, my child has autism. Maybe you should do this first. They really like trucks. Maybe if you talk about fire truck. When you're out in the community, just being flexible, right? These kids are so fun, so interesting, so intelligent. But there's going to be little quirks about them like that. There are with every kid, sure. so I think you know just being sensitive and flexible. Usually, parents will tell you what they need. So in my training, you know, I've worked with adults, I've worked with that zero to three age range, and I've worked with adolescents. Um, I think the oldest person that I diagnosed with autism was a sixty-five year old woman. No kidding. Yeah.
0: How did you end up in her orbit?
2: Uh, you know, I was working at a private practice in Denver that specialized in diagnosing people that struggle to get a diagnosis whether they were females, because females kind of have a different presentation of autism compared talk, to males. Can you talk
0: about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, for sure. So um, females tend to do a better job in that social area and their restrictive and repetitive behaviors are usually what we would call like more appropriate. So for instance, let's say you have a little boy who's very interested in light switches. That's kind of unusual, right? To have very a strong interest in light switches. Whereas a female might have a very strong interest in baby dolls. That's sounds a lot more appropriate. Yeah. But when the play gets so repetitive and the interest becomes so repetitive that um, they can't really move on to anything else, that's when we're starting to see what we would term like a deficit, right? And so these females tend to get diagnosed later. And so the private practice that I worked at specialized in diagnosing um, individuals that struggled to get a diagnosis like older individuals, adults, mm-hmm. um, and females. Yeah.
0: How much of it is treatable with medication? Is it all behavior? Behavioral or are there things that can be helped and augmented with meds?
2: It is. It's behavioral. So behavioral intervention is going to be the first recommendation. There aren't any medications for, for symptoms of autism. Oh. Now, if you have a child or an individual who is struggling with hyperactivity, you know, there's or irritability, right? There are people that have autism that are on medications, but there's nothing that is going to medically like intervene on a symptom of autism in terms of medication.
0: Tell me about what you're doing now. We talked a little bit about it over lunch.
2: The new project, mm-hmm. yes. So when I first started at Lighthouse Autism Center, I was the only psychologist that they've ever hired. So um, although they, they do treatment for, for children with autism, they didn't have the ability to diagnose autism. Mm-hmm. You have to have a certain credential uh, to do that, which I have. And so when they hired me, they were able to offer diagnostic evaluations. So kiddos that come in that need treatment that have never gotten a diagnosis, mm-hmm. because again, those wait lists are going to be a year and they need the treatment early. It was a really great opportunity for me to see them and diagnose them and get them into treatment. Now I'm doing a new project at Lighthouse where I am training our board certified behavior analysts. They're called BCBAs. They do treatment for kids with autism, but I'm training them on how to do some testing for me. So I do the clinical intake and I meet with the parents and I get all the the symptoms and then I have a BCBA do my testing and then I ultimately provide the diagnosis. This is a great opportunity for me to um, reach a lot more kids. You know, it's not just me anymore.
0: (laughs) I can see it on your face. How fulfilling is this for you? You.
2: It's so good. I mean, I've, I've been doing this for a long time. It's been my specialty since I was, um, you know, 21 mm-hmm. and I'm 31 now. So I yeah. guess 10 years. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's just knowing that, like I said, everywhere I've worked, the wait list has been a year or more for these kids to get a diagnosis, let alone get treatment, sure. right? Um, to be able to train individuals on how to look for these symptoms that I'm looking for. You know, it's it's so exciting to me. It's really fun. If, if I can be, you know, the expert in something, it's going to be at helping these kids get a diagnosis and get treatment so that they, that way they can be successful in a classroom setting. Um, it just lights, it lights up my world.
0: I mean, so talk about, uh, before we go, about how families, not just the parents, but the extended family, uncles, cousins, everybody else. If, if there's a child in the family that you, you suspect may benefit from, from what you do between that time it could take a year like you said it's not easy to get into right. diagnosis and get into a clinical environment so what can families do to begin to 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 <laughs> How, how, I don't even know how to frame the question. What can families do to begin to interact in the most beneficial way yeah. until they can get to a person like you?
2: That's a great question. I love this. So if you start to notice someone in your family or even your child isn't really meeting those developmental milestones like you would expect, mm-hmm. or they're starting to um, exhibit some you know unusual play behaviors or they're not quite as social as another kid, you know, definitely urge them to speak with their primary care physician, mm-hmm. they have screeners um, that the primary care physician can give you at the well child visit. Um, I think just urging, you know, hey, it it, it won't hurt for an evaluation, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then when you're engaging with that kid, you know, just really trying to increase their social skills, tickle them, get on the floor with them, engage in pretend play. Um, you know, those things are all skills that are kids need to have and learn and I find that we're kind of Getting out of that, right? Families are on their phones and they're not on the floor oh, with their point. child. So, get down there, you know, get down there and play with them. It's it's going to be beneficial for yourself and it's going to be beneficial for that child.
0: Dr. Stephanie, you're a member of the family. It almost sounds, it feels a little odd to call you that, but, but you've certainly earned the credential and you're a Thank professional. You. And I'm delighted that you're on the Doc and Carolyn podcast. Thank oh you.
1: my gosh, me too. This was so fun.
0: And that's a wrap.
1: I'm so proud of her. She did such a good job. Yeah, she did. On next week's show we're going to talk about eating hygiene it is the first fundamental step in gut health all right
0: meet us back here next friday the doc and carolyn podcast is for entertainment purposes only and the exclusive property of dnc media llc